One of the things we want to do is to help people understand the impact that Chafer Seminary is having around the world. Just one example is we had approximately 145 people in here uh, this morning during the or this afternoon during the afternoon sessions. We had a hundred for the first afternoon session. We had 150 unique computers log into the live stream. So that means probably a few more than just 150 from from and a number of them from from Europe. In fact, Eager said to tell David Rosen hi. Where's David? He says hi. He wanted a burger. Okay, so tomorrow you can take a picture of the burger and send it to him. He's one of our former students in Kiev. He's a pastor there and has, uh, you know, been been involved. Several of you know him, and our churches support him over there. But one of the other uh, foreign students that we have is Chad uh, Wright, who is in Sweden. And so we have a video of from him since he couldn't be here. And then when when that is done, I'm going to ask Maureen Reed, who is a student of Chafer Seminary and is a member of Playroma Play uh, Bible Church in Tullahoma, Tennessee, to come up and to tell us her story. Which is to say, hello, Schaefer Conference. My name is Chad Wright. From my basement here in Nora, Sweden, that is N-O-R-A. You can look it up on Google Maps and uh, see where I'm located. Uh, I've been asked to just briefly uh, describe what Schaefer means to me uh, and how it is helping me in my my uh, development for ministry. Uh, I'm a first year student taking the Biblical Languages Certification, uh, currently in first year Greek in the second semester. Uh, I've always been uh, interested in being able to attend a seminary. My spiritual gift is teaching, uh, specifically to the point of being a pastor teacher. I've known this for quite some time, but have not had the opportunity um, to do the training. Uh, so I've been preparing myself in other means, um, but I'm very not until this distant uh, learning uh, opportunity came along was I actually able to do it on my own time and to be able to afford it as well. Um, the price structure is wonderful for a person in my situation. I work full time. Uh, I have three kids and a wife. Um, but we still need to be trained. Uh, there are not pastors around here who can do that uh, for me. In fact, uh, of the three churches in the past 11 years we have attended here, and though I'm not a church jumper, uh, all of them have ordained women pastors that are now running the churches. Uh, and that is not a new trend. Uh, these were the last three churches where that was not the case. To that point, I want to thank Pastor Mark Perkins from Front Range Bible Church, Pastor Dean, Pastor Woods for allowing your material to be placed online uh, so that people in my situation, uh, fellow Christian believers, can receive good biblical teaching while we're preparing uh, to be able to teach others. Uh, so for those of you who are sitting there, um, being able to attend the conference, uh, I just want to say don't take this resource for granted. Uh, it is invaluable 
to people like myself and uh, who knows who knows how many Cheddarites there are out there uh, Lord help us hopefully just the one but uh, in countries all around the world that need not just biblical teachers in the pastorate at their local churches but need to be trained uh, and they don't have the seminaries locally that are qualified to do that uh, they don't have the funds necessary to maybe go a traditional route and they don't have the time or, or the opportunity uh, to pack up everything and move to a location um, thank you Schaefer for sol solving all three of those for me I really appreciate it Good luck. Enjoy the conference. Thank you. Bye. Good evening. I'm really honored to be here. I'm going to read a verse out of the Bible. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So I'll lead into why I read that verse, but um, my name is Maureen Reed Burke, and I do attend the Claroma Bible Church under Pastor Clay Ward. I'm very thankful for that church. I've been there about eight years, and it's just been an incredible experience. Uh, about 35 years ago, I had my first introduction to Bible teaching, and um, it was the Bethel Bible series. I took the course. I taught for eight years. Um, when I came to this place, I feel like it's Bethel on steroids, and um, I'm thankful to Pastor Clay Ward's teaching and many of, of you others that I haven't met yet. I listen to you online. Dr. Woods, uh, Dr. Clough, I just met, and Dr. Dean, and my current um, professor, Dave Rosland, and I thank you all for that. Um, this is just such an amazing group of people and teaching. Uh, we need young people to get out. I wish I had this 30 years ago when I was looking at seminaries. Um, it's just an amazing group of people, and you will not get this education anywhere else. So I would urge all young people out there who are considering ministry, there is no other place to go to seminary. Thank you. Maureen. All right, our keynote speaker this evening, each evening, is... Uh, Stephen Gare, who's hiding behind the wall over there somewhere. Wait, oh, there he is. You snuck up on me. Okay, Steve, come on. I will uh, try to keep my hips uh, in check uh, today for this evening's presentation. Um, I do want to let you know that um, a good portion of tonight's presentation is coming from this book, Exploring Bible Prophecy from Genesis to Revelation, uh, Clarifying the Meaning. This was a book that was uh, written by four individuals several years ago. Uh, I wrote the, uh, the first quarter of it, uh, Prophecies in the Torah, and the History of the Writings, and uh, that was followed by uh, contributions by Arnold Fuchtenbaum and Randall Price, and Mal Couch. So 
if I speak too quickly for you to keep up with your notes, you'll know where to go to grab, what to grab. Because tonight I am very much like the mummy, pressed for time. And uh, we've, got, uh, we've got a ways to go because we are going to look at messianic prophecy in the Torah, okay, in the law. And you say, well, that should be very simple. You could be done in 10 minutes. Not so. There is a lot of ground to cover. But we're going to, instead of, you know, instead of spending time on one or two passages, we're going to take a, uh, a, a whirlwind tour through the Torah so that we can trace the messianic hope, the messianic theme, the messianic thread from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through to the end of Deuteronomy. So we have quite a bit of ground to cover. Let's buckle our seatbelts and get started. Messianic prophecy in the Torah. Oh, thank God it's taught by me. Okay, good. I'm in the right place. All right. <laughs> uh, and I have to commend you, by the way, on the quality, the high quality of the questions uh, that you asked in the previous session. I expect you to maintain that level. Um, <laughs> the first uh, prophecy, of course, Genesis 3.15. You say, I already heard a message on Genesis 3.15 today. Well, here another one. Um, Genesis 3.15 is the first messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible, in the Torah. And uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your... You know what happened. You know the story of the fall, uh, a little apple, a bite too far, and, uh, and God is judging, right? And I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and uh, between your seed and her seed. Now, seed gets a little bit complicated because it's collective singular, so it could be, could be an individual, could be a group. So that's kind of a easy way to weasel out of this being a messianic prophecy. Well, it's talking about Israel, uh, uh, a collection of people. Not so. It's an individual. Because context is key. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the... Uh, we'll have to go three chapters into the Bible to find the first messianic prophecy, right? Following the moral failure of Adam and Eve in conjunction uh, with the explanation of the harsh, enduring consequences that they will uh, endure because of their disobedience. God turns his attention to the cause of his creation's insubordination, and he declares war. God declares war on the motivating cause of Adonic sin, and that is the serpent, i.e. Satan. As the Lord's curse... In its curse upon the serpent that you see an initial glimpse of the divine overarching plan for humanity's redemption. And the passage, of course, as I've already mentioned, and as you already know, it contains far more than the mere origin of the antagonistic relationship between mankind and snakes. What's being discussed here? A descendant of Eve will successfully wage holy war against Satan and his offspring. It's interesting. I always find it very interesting that uh, uh, while the uh, 
Uh, The identity of this chosen warrior, this seed, is a mystery. It's very clear that the key to this individual has him... Uh, has to do with his being the offspring of a woman, not Adam and Eve, specifically a woman. Interesting. So a holy warrior, evil adversary, they're both going to sustain punishing injury to heel and to head, respectively, in this conflict. The damage that is dealt to both will prove fatal. One will come through. Right, and uh, so when we look at, you have to look first of all. How does this passage? How does any messianic passage? How is it used? The term. Don't get nervous about this term. Intertextually, you know what? That that's a fancy schmancy theological term for um, how other texts in the Bible reference this particular text. So inter textually does any other passage reference this and or allude to it or even quote from it i'm always looking for those things intertextuality is a very important thing uh, and that is why uh, for those of you studying the languages the original languages that's why original languages are so important because sometimes uh, our bible translations our english translations in the in the uh, uh, enthusiasm to communicate in English that is both readable and understandable to an increasing, well, a decreasingly literate culture. Um, sometimes, even though in the original languages you can see, oh, it's a clear shout out. They're using the same language, you know, uh, 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 in this passage and then this one. He must be referring to that. Sometimes that's lost. If one translator is translating one book and another translator is translating another book and uh and he likes this translation for this word and he like and they don't consult and an editor doesn't actually make sure that intertextual references are made you can lose them so very very important but nonetheless when we think about uh how jewish people read this text how did jewish people read this text text. We know, first of all, from some apocryphal or intertestamental, let me say intertestamental literature. When I say intertestamental literature, what am I talking about? I'm talking about literature that was written in between the writing of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. It's a 400, roughly, four-century period of time. And Literature is being produced, theological, historical, all cultural, all kinds of literature still being re- reproduced and, or produced. And as we look back, we can see, oh, well, this was some Jewish ideas. Uh, this is how they read it in the period leading up to the New Testament. So that's why we can go to the New Testament when it references a passage like this and say, ah, it's not just pulling it out of thin air. It is standing on the shoulders of uh, of Jewish interpretation through the previous centuries, right? So, uh, for example, the Wisdom of Solomon tells us that through the devil's envy, death entered the world, identifying the, that Satan is indeed the serpent, right? No question, right? Um, the rabbi, uh, David uh, uh, Kimchi, uh, not, it's spelled like kimchi, but not like the uh, Korean uh, uh, dumpling. Uh, the salvation of thy people by the hands of the Messiah, the son of David, who will wound Satan, who is the head. And more importantly than what this particular rabbi has to say or what this particular law is to look at 
some of the biblical texts that were used by the people in the time of the New Testament, the time of the Second Temple. And one of the major translations, which is actually a paraphrase of the Bible that was used by the common people in the first century, is a volume of literature that we call the Targums, right? What are Targums? Right? That's where you go shopping. It's like it's not Walmart, it's Targum. Right? Uh, no, it's not. Targum is simply an Aramaic paraphrase right? <laughs> because it's the common vernacular of the people who live in the land of Judea at the time. And so it's always interesting to just you know, take a peek and say, did they view this as a messianic passage? And indeed, uh, both uh, Targum's uh, Palestine, sorry for the reference, and Targum's Jerusalem uh, both say that this occurs, this will occur in the days of King Messiah. Well, let's get to the punchline. How does the New Testament use it, right? Uh, and the Garden of Eden serpent that we just read about is specifically referenced um, by John's apocalypse, labeled by John as Satan that serpent of old. And he laid hold of the dragon. This is Revelation 22, 20, verse 2. The serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, in case you don't make the connection, and bound him for a thousand years. So there's a clear reference that they understood. John, um, remember who he is? An apostle of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved, who was so comfortable with Jesus that he would lay his head on his chest during a holiday uh, meal uh, with Jesus for uh, Pesach, for Passover. Uh, and he wrote of, uh, of, uh, of Satan that it's the serpent of old. And of course, Paul says, the God of, the God of peace, Romans 16.20, will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love this particular scene in The Passion of the Christ. Remember that 2004, Passion of the Christ? And the film's opening moments, it really sets the, the tone. And I really got jazzed right from the opening because here we got these opening moments set in, in, in Gatshmanim, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus crushes a serpent right under a sandal. And it's very clear in the New Testament that the Messiah's resurrection will most assuredly result in the final victory over Satan. And that is an encouragement that Paul gives to the church. Paul doesn't actually have to give a teaching on this. Paul assumes that his audience will realize and recognize, of course, that God is going to crush Satan under your feet. It's a reference to <coughs> uh, Genesis 3.15. Grace of our God be with you. Let's move on quickly. Genesis 4. What Prophecy is in Genesis 4. Well, the messianic thing, not a prophecy per se, but the messianic concept, the messianic hope, the messianic idea. And this is Eve's expectation of the Messiah. Again, this is what I was alluding to this morning, that, uh, that Adam and Eve, they, they had to have understood because otherwise the text makes no sense. Now, what, it, what about the Messiah exactly? Aside from uh, then the Messiah will wage war victoriously against God's opposition. Satan will win. When that will happen, how it will happen, unclear, right? But it seems that Eve has an expectation that it's going to be sooner rather than later. Let me show you what I mean. Now, the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, now, there's no italics here. This is not exactly what the text says, but this is what the I think this is New American Standard says, and most of the, uh, you, you won't find a translation that says something much different. I have gotten a man-child, 
That reminds me of Jungle Book, sorry. Uh, uh, I've gotten a memogli. <laughs> I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, most, most versions of Scripture add additional words to this text. And this, with the help of, uh, this is what the NASB, the NIV, the RSV, NKJV tries to go a little bit different. They say, from the Lord, in an attempt to make the translation a little bit clearer. And this is an interpretively, grammatically valid decision. They're welcome to do it. The additional words, however are not grammatically necessary. And I contend that it actually detracts from the messianic implication of the Hebrew text. They are obscuring the messianic hope that I think can be found in this text. The simplest reading of the text reads like this. I have obtained or I have gotten or I have given birth to if you want to be a little bit creative. I have obtained a man, the Lord. You have a Hebrew particle, et, connect, a man, connecting, right? Accusative indication of object. I can see some of you already. <laughs> but none, that was the only grammar you're going to get tonight, right? Um, but I have obtained et, uh, a man, et, yeah, I have obtained a man, the Lord, Jehovah. Thinking that perhaps that this is the God-man that she's given birth to who will conquer Satan. She's obviously wrong, uh, but uh, no question that the rabbis have always been very uh, uncomfortable with accepting the uh, un unembellished grammatical construction of the text, and they, of course, uh, prefer the help of the Lord. But even with that uh, fudging the, the Hebrew grammar, nonetheless, the Midrash, the great Midrash of the uh, Jewish people, say that seed, that seed that would arise from another source, and that other source is King Messiah. That is what is ultimately mean by the help of the Lord. Uh, we go on, and we see Genesis 5, 28 and 29. You remember the, the stories about Enoch and uh, Methuselah and Lam Lamech lived 182 years, became the father of a son. Here's where the action is. He called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. Early humanity had a continued messianic expectation. It's evident with the birth of Noah. And Lamech's fi uh, father had great expectations. Doesn't every father have great expectations of their son? Well, he had great ex he had messianic expectations of his son. And perhaps mistakenly uh, identifying Noah as the divinely promised, yet, you know, shadowy messianic figure. And, uh, of course... Uh, Noah didn't meet his father's hope of providing mankind rest from their work, from the ground which the Lord had cursed. Noah would nonetheless prove a savior of sorts and represented humanity's last best hope within his generation. And this, this passage sets off a whole chain of interpretive issues in rabbinic literature uh, because it, it goes back now 
back from Lamech, it goes back and past Methuselah to Enoch. Remember Enoch? Enoch walked with God and he was not. And what, what is it about? What is, what's the story? Well, this brief enigmatic statement that is given in this passage suffices in some rabbinic circles to turn Enoch into a superhuman figure. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about Marvel Comics, okay? I'm, I'm not talking about DC. But I am talking about a superhuman, that's the first superhero, of course he's Jewish, uh, but a superhuman figure. And see, after his translation, after his rapture, uh, he, was, he becomes, he translates into uh, Metatron. <laughs> Metatron, the chief of all angels. Um, and, and according to the book of Enoch, he is the Messiah. Right? So, Point being, the messianic idea, the messianic hope. It's so shadowy, it's so enigmatic, it's, it's, it's a, a big fat question mark. It's hard to see, it's hard to grasp, like grasping jello, but nonetheless, it is there. Um, let's continue. The Abrahamic Covenant. And of course, we have far too many passages to uh, cover to do justice. To the, so I, I'm assuming that there is a basic familiarity with the Abrahamic Covenant, uh, and a uh, complex of unconditional divine promises stated and restated over a period of years within a series of six recorded encounters between God and Abraham over uh, decades. Each successive restatement expands upon and enlarges the promised provision of the primary central core of the covenant. We think about the Abrahamic covenant. We take a little stone uh, and we toss it into uh, the lake and we see the first plop makes a nice circle and then we have uh, ripples that proceed from the central core as the circle gets larger, six recorded encounters, and we have that whole complex that would tie a ribbon with it, and we tie it in a bow, and we call it the Abrahamic Covenant. Why is it called the Abrahamic Covenant? Because it's the covenant God made with Abraham, right? Theologians, not a very creative lot. Um, but uh, we, get to, um, we get to 22, and we kind of get a, a sense of uh, Genesis 22. This is right after the uh, binding of Isaac. Uh, and we get a kind of um, greatest hits of the Abrahamic covenant. So we can see, indeed, I will greatly bless you. So the promise of blessing of Abraham and Abraham's seed is progeny um, through Isaac, not through the other son. Uh, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. This is why Jewish people are called stiff-necked in the scripture because God made Abraham look up, stars look down, stand, look up, and stars are stand. So you get a real quick. This is why the Jewish people invented chiropractic. Um, and your seed shall possess the... <laughs> Some things, you know, I don't know, they just come and I shouldn't express them. But, you know, you make a decision in the moment. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and he swears, God, at this point, he uses the most intensive form of oath. By myself, I have sworn. He restates his intention of the divine blessing. He restates his promise of innumerable descendants, uh, the possession of the land, and then that Abraham's descendants will possess enemies, enemy cities. Right? And of course, all nations will be blessed through Abraham, seed. In your seed, all the nations of the earth 
shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Well, the influence of the Abrahamic covenant, it's woven throughout the, just like the Messianic hope. Whoa, this is the second thread that is woven throughout the tapestry of Scripture from the 12th chapter of Genesis all the way through the final chapter of Revelation. The Abrahamic covenant forms the foundational basis for every subsequent covenant in the Bible. Now this may be basic information for you, but I assume there may be some people perhaps watching or maybe even some people in the room who this may be new material for. But without this covenant, if this covenant was not in the Bible, or if you take this covenant and you neuter it through spiritualizing its promises, Israel's right to the land is incomprehensible. The messianic age could never be anticipated. And the union of Jews and Gentiles together in spiritual union would be unthinkable. Because of the Abrahamic covenant, beginning with the Abrahamic covenant, we have the basis of this meeting today. Jew and Gentile together, pleased to meet you. Right hand of fellowship, right? Echoes of the Abrahamic covenants, celebrated themes of blessing, resound from exodus to conquest, from kingdom to exile, from incarnation to resurrection, and from the nation of Israel to the universal dominion of the Messiah. Now, Paul gets clever with this passage. Remember when we talk about collective singular versus uh, uh, versus uh, not, is it is it uh, plural is it a singular what are we talking with the word seed seed is one of those tricky hebrew terms that goes both ways i mean that in a grammatical fashion now the promises were spoken to abraham and to his seed and he does not say and to seeds which the Hebrew you can't do, uh, as referring to many. He's making a rabbinic argument. Paul is very much making an argument that would have... Like when I was reading this as a college student, I found the argument, frankly, rather specious. Okay, right? But for a first century rabbinic, uh, rabbinically trained uh, audience, a Jewish audience, an audience that grew up with the arguments of uh, Jewish traditions and rabbis, and so, this would have been a very compelling argument. And I think if you look at it, it still is compelling for us today. So antecedes is referring to many but to one and to your seed that is Christ. So whether we look at an absolute singular or the collective singular, are we talking about uh, the, the, the nation or we're talking about the Messiah? Paul says, well, although you can look at it both ways, I'm telling you the ultimate fulfillment is through the Messiah, a single one. Boom, there. Genesis 22, again, this is the, uh, the Akedah, this is the binding of Isaac, a familiar story. God tells Abraham, take your son. Um, most of our translations say, uh, take your son, your only son. It's not his only son, right? Have you not read? Translators, have you not read just what happened in the previous chapters? Ishmael, right? How quickly they forget. Uh, but it's it's unique son, right? In the same way that uh, uh, the term is used of Jesus uh, in uh, in John, the monogonese, the unique, the one and only, the, the important son of promise, um, and take him and, and kill him. And uh, uh, they go up to Mount Moriah, and uh, they're, they're on their way. And uh, Isaac, remember, Isaac is not a kid. Isaac is then a little, uh, little boy like you may see in the movies or in Sunday school stories or flannel graphs, for those of you who remember those. Um, he, he's, he's at minimum, 
Okay, at minimum, he's a young, strapping teenager at minimum age, okay, and could be all the way up to his 30s chronologically, okay, fitting with uh, the li- what we know about the life of Isaac, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so not a kid, okay, at least a strapping young man. And uh, he says, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, you've got the flint for the fire and you've got the wood. In fact, I'm carrying the wood because uh, I'm not going to make my 100-year-old father, whatever he is. I'm not going to make my old man literally an old man, carry the wood, schlep the, I'm schlepping it up uh, Mount Moriah, uh, <laughs> but you forgot something, uh, where's, the, uh, where's the animal for sacrifice? This is not Isaac's first rodeo, you know, this is not his first sacrifice. Uh, he knows the required components for a sacrifice, uh, and uh, Abraham says to him, uh, uh, God will provide uh, the lamb, my son, uh, and they can continue going, and they're climbing up the, uh, the hill the uh, elevation, and as they get closer and closer to the top with no action regarding uh, a sacrificial animal, uh, Isaac must have realized at some point that he didn't get a memo. Uh, And uh, (laughs) there was some piece of information, perhaps a critical piece of information he was not privy to. Um, Abraham stretched out his hand. Stretched out his hand, one hand to cover the the eyes of the sacrifice, as was done, who is bound to the altar. So it was an interesting thing, you know, think about, well, uh, how did this old uh, seasoned citizen, how did this uh, old fella um, strap down, and well, pardon the expression, hogtie, uh, a, a, a young man like this? Uh, he did wrestle him. Isaac had to willingly lay down his life. Uh, and put himself on the altar. At some point, Isaac realized he made the connection that he was the sacrifice that God was providing. And so, you know, as uh, as we call Abraham the man of faith, so too is Isaac the man of faith. Does it take more faith to sacrifice your son of promise, uh, who, if he dies, the whole covenant promise, the, all those blessings, uh, all everything just blows up into small... Does it take more, more faith to do that? Or does it take more faith to lay yourself down and offer yourself up for sacrifice? That's a, it's a decision I couldn't make. It's a call I couldn't make. But both require... So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Both are men of faith. This is a tremendous, a tremendous story. Um, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. And we know that the angel of the Lord in this instance, the angel of Jehovah, is actually not uh, just an angel... It is uh, God himself. And again, I would argue that this is the second person of the Trinity who is speaking here. And said, Abraham, Abraham. You have the double use of the name. Always always what is used in Scripture when God has a holy calling on his people. Remember that. Uh, Shaul, Shaul. Saul, Saul. Moses, Moses. Abraham, Abraham. right? Uh, Samuel, Samuel. Um, Abraham, here I am, Hineni. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing for him, but to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, your unique son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him a ram, caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in place of his son. So this is known as the binding of Isaac. In Jewish theology. This is a huge passage. This is a huge moment. This aborted sacrifice 
of Abraham's son. Rabbic, the rabbinic teaching has always viewed the willing sacrifice of Abraham for his son and Isaac himself in offering himself as, catch this, an act of vicarious atonement that could be applied throughout the future history of Abraham and Isaac's descendants, i.e. the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. The righteousness of the patriarchs could be vicariously applied to their descendants in time of spiritual need. I discussed this on my CD and trumpets. Really uh, uh, a very, very important uh, concept regarding the Jewish messianic hope, which is our messianic hope as well. So because the rabbis see a picture of atonement. When we talked about different types of fulfillment, legitimate types of fulfillment. One is, of course, literal. This is going to happen. A virgin will give birth. And indeed, that will literally be fulfilled. A virgin does give birth. Well, this is a picture. What Paul calls in Colossians chapter 2, a prophetic type, uh, a shadow of things to come. And so the rabbis see a picture of atonement in Isaac. And so does Paul, of course. Isaac is a prophetic type of the Messiah. Because Jesus is a lot of ultimate things. He's ultimate David. He's ultimate Moses. He's the ultimate man. He's ultimate Israel. He's also ultimate Isaac. See, both Isaac and Jesus were sons of promise. Unique. Both men had miraculous births. Both were obedient and willing sons who were prepared to Laid down their lives. They were ready to lay down their lives at their father's behest. Both sons even carried the wood for their own sacrifice. In fact, one of the rabbinic volumes of literature, the Pesichta Rabbah, says, quote, Isaac carried the wood like a man who takes up his cross. Right? But Jesus is the Messiah. Right? Both Isaac and Jesus had fathers who were prepared to slay their sons, to fulfill a larger purpose. As Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, so too was God willing to sacrifice his only son. Yet God did not demand of Abraham what he demanded of himself. The Lord provided a substitute sacrifice for the son of Abraham, that ram caught in the thicket, but there was no, of course, no alternative sacrifice available for the son of God. How does the New Testament reference this? Right here, John 1, 29. Next day, John, his cousin, uh, John uh, the Southern Baptist. Um, I, I, I say, so I, I'm not trying to be you know, humorous. Uh, I'm trying to be factual. Uh, according to the gospel, John baptized on the southern end of the Jordan River. That, to me, makes him the Southern Baptist. So if you're part of the, be proud of your heritage. You know, stand on. But the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only monogenes, his only, his unique, his one of a kind son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That, of course, was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. It was true if you're watching this on video. 
It's true today. Well, let's go on. Hebrews. I wrote a commentary on Hebrews, by the way. Did you know that all commentaries come with baggage? Um, my, uh, my commentary comes with uh, baggage, uh, uh, Jewish backgrounds, uh, uh, contextual clues uh, to help you uh, understand a very difficult text. Uh, but anyway, Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, <laughs> by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Definite correlation between the New Testament recognition of messianic hope and the original sources of that hope, the book of Genesis. Well, before we're finished with Genesis, we've got one more passage to look at. This is uh, Jacob on his deathbed. A lot of people blow this. When they're, when they're preaching uh, Genesis, they blow off Genesis 49, right? Jacob's final words to his 12 sons because, gosh, there's 12 of them. And, you know, it's all poetry and prophet. It's very difficult. But Jacob summoned, it can be tedious, you know, for some pastors, but, but not to you, not to you. <laughs> Jacob <laughs> summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in days to come. The, the days to come. Jacob before he says anything specific about these sons, lets you know, hey, I'm about to give a prophetic word. Heads up, prophecy is about to be unleashed. And in Genesis 49, verse 1, he goes on, well, he goes through, he goes through several sons uh, until he gets to the fourth one. The uh, first three are uh, disqualified from leading the nation. But Judah, the fourth son, is dealt with. And it's Judah, the, the lion, to whom the mantle of tribal leadership is passed. Judah is recognized as being worthy of the privileges of the firstborn. And within Jacob's prophetic blessings of his 12 sons is a particular promise that has great relevance to the Messianic hope. Judah's tribe will rightfully rule they will possess the scepter, in other words, the symbol of royalty, over the rest of their brethren until a particular moment in history, expressed with a mysterious and, for some, untranslatable phrase, Shiloh, Shiloh, for those who are pronunciation fanatics. Um, the, <laughs> it's true. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, verse 10, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice wine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes, dull is not a good term here. His, his eyes are, I wouldn't use the, the translation of dull, I would say dark. His eyes are dark from wine, his teeth white from milk. He's glorious. This Shiloh figure. So, rabbis, interpreters, pastors, exegetes, commentators, have all wrestled for thousands of years. Well, what is Shiloh? What is Shiloh? What is, is it a place? Until Shiloh comes, so a place can come to you? No, 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 no. Right. 
Um, some rabbis said, well, that is, it's the name of Messiah. It's one of the names. Messiah has a lot of names, right? Uh, and one of his names is Shiloh. Um, I think a good translation of this particular term, if you don't want to just use Shiloh, is uh, to him, him to whom it belongs. Him to whom it belongs. In other words, him, he, the guy, who has the authority, who has the authority to possess. He to whom it belongs. But we'll just call him Shiloh. Shy for short. Right? And to him shall be the obedience of the people. We have a good clue that what's meant is, yes, this authoritative figure, he to whom it belongs, because Ezekiel, contextually, centuries later, I think is alluding to this very concept, this concept of a messianic leader, messianic hope. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, take off the crown. This is the Vedic dynasty. This will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low and debase that which is high. A ruin. A ruin. A ruin. You're getting the point? Ezekiel, Ezekiel doesn't want you to miss this. The Davidic dynasty is temporarily kaput. Original Hebrew. Um, a ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. And this also will be no more. The Davidic dynasty, the Davidic... Right? This is, this is after there's no more king uh, in, in uh, Judah. They've been taken to exile. There'll be no more. Not forever. Until he comes, whose right it is. Him to whom it belongs. Until Shiloh comes. And I will give it to him. Give what? The Davidic crown. The... Ter- Put the turban on, put the crown back on, because the right guy is go- and he's going to be there for a really long time. So get used to it. All right. We can't leave Genesis without looking at the story of Joseph. I mentioned this earlier today. Studying the Messianic prophecies of Genesis is not complete until we see typology that is present within the biographical account of Joseph. It is indisputable. Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. This is when they have to come to Egypt to beg for food. Um, and it's, it's not surprising they didn't recognize him, right? I mean, it's, it's certainly been a very long while uh, since they betrayed him and sold him into slavery, right? But now after all this time, they and of course they're awfully hungry. They might be dizzy from you know, hunger, a little nauseous. Uh, but uh, they don't recognize their brother, uh, the, the gold lame, the headdress, uh, you know, the eyeshadow. Um, it could be very confusing. But they didn't recognize him. But of course he recognized them. And then of course the second time they come, Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Uh, And just like the Joseph passage, we now move to Exodus. And again, something I alluded to this morning, I spoke of this morning, same idea. Moses, first time he shows up to deliver his people, they respond and say, chapter 2, verse 14, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Who do you think you are? But then, after the Red Sea and ten plagues, And a Passover, chapter 14, verse 31. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They realized that God is the one who made you a 
prince and a judge over us. So typology. Jesus, he came to his own people. The first time he came, most of the Jewish people didn't recognize him. They didn't accept his authority. They certainly didn't welcome his deliverance. But when he comes a second time, but when he comes a second time, things will be different. Well, we've got to keep moving. Uh, Stephen makes this point, the point that I just made. We go to Numbers. Um, this is, the, uh, this is the, uh, the serpent. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard. It shall come about. Everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard. It came about that if a serpent bit any man, he looked to the, to the statue, to the bronze serpent, and he lived. Right? So through uh, Israel's continuing desert sojourn, they have a combination of forceful impatience, gross ingratitude, uh, and yet again that resulted in divine punishment. Surprise, surprise. The Israelites were plagued with a plethora of uh, deadly venomous snakes, and uh, um, finally they seek Moses' intercession and plead to the Lord. And uh, Moses was instructed to fashion a bronze, maybe a copper, replica of one of the serpents to be mounted and raised on a pole to be placed in the central location of the camp. And from that moment on, if you were bitten by a serpent, all you had to do was look intently, but with faith, with faith, at the elevated bronze or copper replica and receive healing. Well, John references this specifically in the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. We have here, again, a typological illustration. You have a picture. This is not, it's not a literal fulfillment, okay? As if there is a prophecy that was given uh, through the act of Israelites and Moses with the, with the bronze serpent that, that one day there'll be a super serpent coming or there'll be a, some kind of... A, no, it's a picture. Just as, as Moses. It's a picture that has a, uh, a type that has an antitype, right? A picture that has a punchline to it. Moses lifted up the serpent, even so the son man must be lifted up, right? It's a prophetic type, and it illustrates his mission, right? Just as Israel could look at the bronze serpent and receive salvation from physical temporal death, so could men look upon the son of man, the crucified Messiah, elevated upon a cross, and thereby receive eternal life. Remember, he also said, I don't know if I have this here. Yes, I do. Uh, John 12. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. That is two shout-outs by Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John to this event. Right? I, I'm not one of the guys who like sees typology you know, under every bush. Right? It's like, you know, grammar... I'll speak to those grammarians, right? There are some commentators that see a uh, chiastic structure in every other text, right? Oh, look at the chiasm I've identified. Great, okay, I know you needed something to do for your doctoral thesis, but uh, give me, a, I'm tired of the chiasms. Uh, the uh, rubric of Omer chiasm. Uh, but, uh, but, and I'm not the guy who looks for types, so, but when the Bible tells us it's a type, it's a picture, I pay attention, right? We all need to be selective art lovers to the pictures that the Bible portrays. 
he was saying that to indicate the kind of death, crucifixion, by which he would die, right? Well, all right. Uh, what are the points of uh, correlation? How does the picture work? Okay, the replica in uh, Numbers had the form of a deadly serpent but didn't have venom. So the Messiah uh, possessed the likeness of sinful flesh without sin. Secondly, the replica serpent seemed... I would absolutely say that's a counterintuitive solution for the dilemma that is striking the Israelites, right? Snakes are biting me. Um, either I want a snake wrangler or I want some venom uh, uh, antidote. So counterintuitive. Just in the same way, a crucified Messiah. That is wildly, seemingly an unlikely cure for the sin of mankind. And the final connection. Just as looking with faith upon God's provision for Israel, the bronze serpent, resulted in physical healing. Looking with faith upon God's provision for mankind, the Messiah, provides our spiritual salvation. All right, well, we've got to move. Oh, my goodness. Um, Numbers 23 and 24. This is the uh, the oracles of Balaam, right? Remember Balaam? Uh, uh, everybody just remembers Balaam because, you know, he has the adventure with the ass. Uh, and, and you know, as children, we were like, he said ass in church. Um, you know, and the, that's not the important thing about Balaam, right? The important point about Balaam. Are you all awake? You staying awake? Okay, good. Right? Reading the Bible is an adventure, Right? Balaam is a, he's a goy. He's a, he's a, he's, a, he's a, what we call a shagitz. He's a Gentile. And he's not just any Gentile. He's a Gentile seer. He's a soothsism, a soothsayer rather, from the region of Mesopotamia. And he's, uh, he's hired to uh, proclaim curses against Israel. And each time it gets turned into a blessing, Israel, right? So we call these uh, proclamations by the seer Balaam. We call these oracles, okay? It's just a convenient term for them. Uh, and uh, the second oracle, uh, it has a messianic uh, it has a messianic theme through it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob. Nor, remember, we're in, I'm cherry picking the highlights here, right? We're not, this is not an in-depth uh, teaching on any of these. We don't have time for it. We're just getting the overview, right? We're getting the, the roadmap um, of messianic hope throughout Torah tonight. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them, Israel, out of Egypt, for he is, like, he, he is for them like the horns of the wild ox. Um, and apparently that was a, an illustration that was easily understood in that culture. If you ever got in front of the horns of a wild ox, you'd understand it's a very powerful image, right? Uh, and so I academically have read about it, uh, but uh, I have never been in front of a, uh, the horns of a wild ox. But I know that that is an awesome uh, picture, uh, and that is a picture of God's preservation of Israel and their glorious future, right? No enemy... Eventually, no enemy will stand, some unspecified future, no enemy will stand against Israel. They'll have a glorious and secure future, safeguarded by their God. Okay, great. Then we get to the third oracle. The water will flow from his buckets. Plug up that hole. No, water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters his king. 
shall be higher than Agog, the Amalekite uh, uh, leader, and his kingdom shall be exalted. We move now from Israel, from the nation, to a particular leader. And his greatness, higher than any enemy of Israel, and his kingdom will indeed be exalted. But then we get to the fourth oracle, and here's where the action is. So you can spend weeks on this stuff, and you should, by the way, spend weeks on this. You know what I, I'm doing for you right now? It just occurred to me. It's like a sampler platter. You know, this is a sampler platter. You know, I, for, the, for you, here's what I'm doing for you right now. I am coming up to the buffet restaurant, and I'm always the guy who, before I go up and dig in and start on this end, I want to walk the lay of the land. I want to see what's, what's in this chafing dish. And I want to move all the way down because I don't, want to, I don't want to blow the whole real estate of my plate on this thing because if something better might be coming. Right? So I'm getting, getting the lay of the land before I dig into the buffet. Right? So that's what we're doing tonight. Okay. <laughs> and this fourth oracle is absolutely fabulous and very important in Israel's history. I see him. I see him. Some future figure. But not now. That's how you know it's a future figure. I see him, but not now. Some unspecified future. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter. Wait, I've seen that language before. Back in Genesis 49, verse 10. Uh, But that couldn't possibly be connected here. Intertextuality. Um, a, a scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, enemy of Israel, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Again, enemies of all Israel. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession, possession while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob, shall have dominion. This is the language of a royal leader. So he's apparently not only a royal leader, a scepter, but he also is a valiant warrior and conquering king, and he will destroy the remnant from the city. Israel's dominion will encompass a greater territory than what Israel itself could hope to possess. Messiah will defeat the nation of Moab and Edom will become Israel's possession. Say, okay, that sounds good, but you got an axe to grind, right? You're reading all kinds of Messiah stuff into this passage that's not there. How did the rabbis read it, pal? Well, how about how did the Targums translate or paraphrase this in Aramaic in the first century? What were the people who lived during the time of Jesus reading when they read this? How about this from Targum Onkelos? A king shall arise out of Jacob and be anointed the Messiah out of Israel. That's how they paraphrased this passage. Right? Um, now, I know I'm not 
I'm leaving now. I'm leaving very quickly, but just for a moment. Uh, first century, second temple Judaism. I'm going 15th or 13th centuries in the future to the uh, to the uh, volume, uh, the the Bible, if you will, of the uh, of the Kabbalah of the uh, uh, Karaz- the mystical Jews. Okay, mystical Judaism. It's called the Zohar. Right to which you could say, so hardy, har har. That's really far out. Uh, but it identifies when it talks about this passage. It says the star is Messiah, which makes perfect sense for those of us who study Jewish history, because we know that after the first revolt against Rome that resulted in the temple being destroyed and multiple casualties and exiles, there was still uh, a substantial number of Jewish people who lived in Israel at the time. And uh, two generations later, they try their hands again um, and revolting against Rome. And they are led by a guy named Shimon Bar Kosheba. Um, and the leading rabbi of the day, Akiva, he said, oh, no, 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 your name is not uh, Bar Kosheba. I'm going to call you Bar Son, Bar Kochba, the son of the star, because you are the Messiah, and he declared Bar Kokhba, the leader of this rebellion, the Messiah, and they were going to overthrow uh, the uh, the Romans. Uh, uh, the Talmud speaks of this uh, encounter. And Rabbi Akiva saw Bar Kozba. He said, this is Melech Mashiach. This is King Messiah. Uh, another rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta, said to him, Akiva, grass will grow out of your cheeks, and still the son of David will not come. Uh, and then, of course... Uh, <laughs> uh, Shimon Bar Kokhba is originally in Kosoba uh, because he loses the battle and he's uh, killed in the, in the war. Uh, uh, Jewish later tradition said that he should be translated as uh, uh, Shimon Bar Kosev, uh, Shimon, son of a liar. Uh, but uh, a Rabbi Akiva, who also uh, was in prison and later put to death, uh, apparently, I think his final words after declaring uh, this disastrous. Uh, pseudo-Messiah, as the Messiah. His last words, tradition says that the, he, his last words were the Shema, right? The hero is... I think his last words were, oops. Uh, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, this prophecy in Numbers, the fourth oracle, should be indelibly inscribed upon each believer's heart in association with a familiar story that we all know, told and retold annually of wise men from the east, likely Mesopotamia, the region of Balaam, following the star and seeking to find one born king of the Jews. Oh, yeah, I don't want to go to that. Intertextuality, you don't, you don't have time for it. Um, you have the slides. Uh, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Apparently, they read Numbers 24 as messianic. So did Jesus, apparently, and not just any old Jesus, but Jesus who's glorified. Revelation 22. You know, I always like to read the uh, first lines of a book and the last sections of a book because the author always you know, tells you basically you, he reveals his theme. He reveals uh, what he wants to remember. He leads you off with an important thing and he ends with something really important he wants to remember. And Revelation 22 is the last chapter. It's the last words of Jesus. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am, here's who I am. This is what I want you to remember me. I am the root 
and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Reference to Deuteronomy or to uh, Numbers 24. Well, let's get to our last uh, prophecy for the night, and this is very, very important. Prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again. Remember this? Ten commandments are, uh, are, are uh, spoken directly by God on Sinai. Uh, and uh, uh, the Jewish people say, oh, so this is what direct contact with God is like. I've had sufficient. Uh, Moses, you can be our middleman from now on. You can, uh, right? So uh, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire or I will die. The Lord, Jewish people were so dramatic. Uh, The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. And this is the prophecy. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is a very significant prophecy. Messiah will be the greatest of all Jewish prophets. Moses prepares the people, not merely for uh, prophets to come, but for his ultimate successor, the Messiah. And the quality, of course, that Moses, different from all of the Jewish people, you know, read the Bible, right? We don't suffer from a shortage of prophets. Elijah, Elisha, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Obadiah, Jeremiah, on and on, right? But none of them were the prophet like unto Moses. The quality that makes Moses distinct from all of the Jewish prophets was his intimate relationship with the Lord. He spoke together with him faith to faith and mouth to mouth. With him, Numbers 12, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord, something we were talking about this morning. Why then were you not afraid to speak out against my servant, against Moses? And then we get to the end of Deuteronomy. Moses has gone up, he climbed Nebo, he's dead. And someone later adds this addendum to Deuteronomy. Sometime later, not the next day. Okay. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The thing about this prophecy is that Moses says that you're going to find one like me. One will come. And if you do not listen to him. And when in the Hebrew, of course, it says listen. It means listen with intent to obey. It's talking about obedience. If you are disobedient to this, if you do not actually hear and put into practice what this, uh, what this uh, prophet says, you'll be removed from the people. I think that means death. So you better listen to him when he shows up. And then, verse 11, For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for the mighty power, all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So, how did the New Testament view this passage? John opens with it. John the Baptist is being grilled by the leaders. Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? What prophet? Prophet like Moses. This is why sometimes the text is insufficient 
right? You need a little background. Um, you need intertext. So you may not need commentaries. But if you don't rely on commentaries, you need to be sufficient, have a sufficient knowledge of the entirety of the text. Because you never know when there's an intertextual moment, when the author of one book is assuming familiarity with another, like this one. Are you the prophet, the prophet like Moses? Nope. Why then are you baptizing? If you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, and you're the prophet. What, do you have a water thing? You like water? Uh, and Philip, of course, found Nathaniel, 145, and said to him, We have found him. This is how Philip tells Nathaniel, Jesus is the Messiah. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. John, of course, Jesus, of course, and John, we talked about this earlier today. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. How about Deuteronomy 18? That's really a hard one to, uh, to say you're reading uh, your own agenda into. If you don't believe his writings, how you believe my words? John 6, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he performed, they said, hey, in the original Aramaic, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. What prophet? Not Muhammad. Okay, the prophet like Moses, some of the people, John 7, Jesus interrupts a feast of uh, tabernacles, Sukkot. He says, you want water? You got to come to me. I'm your water boy, right? And some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, they said, well, this surely is the prophet, right? Um, uh, this guy's got a lot of chutzpah. We haven't seen chutzpah like this since Moses. <laughs> Look at the authority with which he speaks. Peter uses this as a major uh, component in his uh, temple speech in chapter 3 of Acts. Moses said, quotes the passage, and it shall be, he's quoting, quoting the passage, Deuteronomy 18, likewise, oh, here it is again, our favorite word, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and successors have announced these days. This again, uh, Stephen at his uh, trial, this is the Moses, Jesus is the Moses, who said to the sons of Israel, there's a prophet like me coming. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Why do I have this here? Because the authority of Moses was unmatched, unprecedented, unmatched, until someone who actually incarnated the Word, someone who was the living Word of God. Moses delivered the words of God, Ten Commandments. He cradled the, the stone tablets, right? But the Word is God. And, of course, Hebrews 6 and that is enough. We have one more. You have the slide for it. It's an illustration. It's an application. Questions. Questions. Because there comes a time at this time of night that the mind can only absorb what the behind can endure. <laughs> Selah. Questions. Again, you impressed me this morning. Perhaps it was the key was skipping that first question, so let us continue our tradition. Skip the first question and go right here to number two, right here. Number two. I have a question, Genesis 3.15. The seed of the serpent, does that refer to Satan? The seed of the serpent is Satan himself, Okay, the second part of my question, was this fulfilled on the cross? This, no, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Okay, when will this, that occur then? Um, when Satan is bound for a thousand years, when Messiah is victorious, after he returns, etc., etc. 
then how does Satan, the, the seed of the serpent, bruise the heel of Christ? It is a wounding, uh, winds up being a fatal wounding on the cross. So, the, uh, so yeah, so uh, I hate to say, already, not yet, uh, but that's what you... <laughs> That's what you have. You have you have the seed being wounded. Apparently, a fatal wound, but whoa, surprise, right? Pops up again. Okay, um, but the final tossing into a lake of that will be final. Okay, so, be so it's final. partially fulfilled on the cross with the bruising of Jesus. There'll heel. be no more bruising of the Messiah. That's right. correct. But, yes. but the bruising of Satan then. At, yes. at the end times. Yes, Thank exactly you. right. I mean, I don't like the word bruising as a translation. It reminds me of a banana. You know, I think wounding, you know, is a little bit stronger and probably more accurate, but uh, bruising is fine. Yeah, um, Jesus, the bruiser, just doesn't yeah. quite. Right. right. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing WWF. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. WWE, whatever. Um, Tech. Yeah. Third, okay. I guess third question. Yeah, right. Um. <laughs> You, you said the angel of the Lord you believe to be the second person of the Trinity. Which Absolutely. Which I've grown up with, understood that. Then how are we to understand Hebrews 1, 5, to which of the angels does he say, this is my son? Okay. That's an excellent term, uh, an excellent question, and the smart Alec answer will be read my commentary. Um, commentary, by the way, uh, is called uh, Hebrews Christ is Greater. Uh, that's not my original title. The original title was uh, uh, the book of Hebrews, News from the Jews for Yous. Uh, but whatever you call it, it smells as sweet. But uh, in answer, um, the angel of the Lord is never actually an angel. It, he's, he's introduced um, so often as the angel of the Lord. We see very, very frequently, high frequency, right? The angel of the Lord. And all of a sudden, two lines later, uh, he's identified as God himself. So the angel of the Lord, and again, not just any old Lord, but the angel of, and I, I despise the convention of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, um, as a, uh, a protection or whatever of the, of the tetragrammaton of the name of God. Because God, our covenant God has a name. I don't pronounce the name. I use the term Jehovah, right? Or Adonai or Hashem or some other euphemism, so it's not to take the name in vain. But nonetheless, um, uh, the angel of specifically the covenant Jehovah is always um, God Himself, right? as was the Captain, the Lord of Hosts. As I mean, there's uh, multiple appearances. I mean, when you have uh, you have uh, the announcement to uh, Samson's parents, uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. Mother's never given a name. Very sad uh, for her. But I call him Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, right? I mean, his name. Why do you ask my name? Because it is Pele. It is wonderful. It's one of the terms that is used in Isaiah uh, chapter nine of the uh, of the coming messianic king, um, uh, who is a divine uh, king. He's the God Man. Uh, and so um, when and we have Manoah frightened because he's seen God, not just seen an angel. So on and on and on. Good. All right. We'll allow that. Uh, you mentioned in Genesis 4.1, at the birth of Cain, the, the verb kana. Do you find an intertextual connection there with Proverbs 8.22? Do you view that as a messianic text related to the birthing of the humanity of Christ? How do you, do you find well, that Well, you know, I mean, Genesis 4 is the birth of Cain. And, you know, I don't, <coughs> I'm saying Eve having a messianic hope and expectation. I mean, listen, you know, every month. <laughs> 
I was going to say every Jewish, but she's not Jewish. But every Jewish mother, you know, thinks that their their firstborn son <laughs> is divine. Uh, but uh, uh, but she she really thinks that her. Son, I think reading the text that her son is a God man. I have given birth to you know some kind of mini Jehovah here. Um, she's wrong. Obviously, Cain turns out to be not that. Um, so I don't I don't know if I'd make a connection with Proverbs. Yeah. Okay. Who's next? All right, we have one more question. First question. Uh, Isaiah 14 references a morning star as well. Could the king of Babylon be typical of Christ in some No, because you know what? Here, here's the thing. A lot of people have what I call, a, and we don't use concordances anymore, you know, who wants to shop around a big thing when you've got a computer? But, you know, they have concordance uh, Bible study, right? And they look and say, okay, look at all the mentions of the word star, okay? And they say, okay, well, the star uh, here is the Messiah, and the star here is the King of Babylon. Hey, guess what? King of Babylon is the Messiah. No, context is king. Context is king. And, and sometimes... The assumption of the original authors of Scripture, or the authors of Scripture, the assumption, the working hypothesis of the authors of Scripture is that the people of God would always have a certain level of literacy and familiarity with other texts, okay? Everything that is holy, uh, holy writ. They would recognize when a word was used in this context, or when a word was used in this context, whether there's a connection being made or not. Um, it is to the credit of this uh, of this uh, gathering, uh, that you are seeking a higher level of biblical literacy, but it is to the shame of the church in general and at large that we are so devoid of an understanding and literacy of the context of these things that we don't recognize these things ourselves. So, wow, I got to preaching for a second. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to uh, at all. But thank you very much for this evening. I'll be here all week. <laughs> We can simplify that. When you take the text out of context, you're left with a con job. Oh, that's good. That's very good. All right. We will see everybody back here. We'll close. I'll close in prayer in just a minute. We'll see everybody back here. The morning session begins uh, at 8.30. Uh, tomorrow morning, let me see, at the 8.30 session, uh, we have uh, Dr. McGinnis will be back. And then uh, uh, the program will proceed from there. So we'll see all of you here. I hope you turned in your uh, food selections for the food truck at noon uh, because that's going to be great, and we're going to have some good discussions tomorrow. Father, thank you for this time we've had tonight. We pray that you would uh, help us to assimilate, understand uh, what we have been uh, uh, fed this evening and to work through these remarkable prophecies, so many of them in the Scripture, that point exclusively to Jesus Christ uh, in an undeniable way. And, Father, we just we know this just gives us great confidence that he is who he claimed to be and that he is our Savior. And we have, a, as a result, a great salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.